0: Well, the reading this morning is the famous list of the Beatitudes in the Mountain Sermon from Matthew's Gospel. Now, I want to say my approach to the Scripture is that one uses it as a guide to life. However it got to be in the translations that we have, however the long oral tradition was transmitted and the redactors, the editors associated it, in my view, the way to deal with this is as the words exist and to use them as a guide for life without spending a whole lot of time on the things that scholars spend their time on. The scholars probe and dissect and write articles in learned journals about the theology behind the way the Scripture came to be, and that is their professional job. But Professor Tillich used to say that Christian theologians were always still inside the theological circle. That is to say that they wore two hats, that they wore their professional hat when they were doing their scholarly work, and then when they moved into the theological circle, they simply listened to the word rather than study it or dissect it. That view that looks at the scripture as it now stands the late Robert McAfee Brown of Stanford called the state of secondary naivete, that is to say that one accepts it and uses it as a guide and lives by it without spending too much time in terms of all of the scholarly work that underlies the roots of this. Now, having said that, I'm going to start off this morning with some fairly classic theology. So... I'm going to do what I usually don't do, and that is spend time on pure theology at the beginning. And that is because in Matthew and Luke, we have two different versions of Beatitudes. And so the question is why this is the case. Matthew's sermon is the mountain sermon, and Luke's is the sermon on the plain. Matthew has nine Beatitudes, Luke has four. And we have to look at that and try to understand why these things would be. Now, the first and most obvious thing is that all teachers, and certainly the teacher of teachers, says things more than once. We tell our students all the time that you only remember 10 or 15 percent of what you hear once orally. So for long-term potentiation of memory, one has to hear things more than once. And it also seems clear that the teacher of teachers, when he taught, said the same things in different ways at different times. So that if you were in one group listening, you might have a version of the teaching that was slightly different from the memory of another. And this is not, in any sense, a conflict where one is authentic and the other is not. One is true and the other is not. They're simply two versions. So the thing that I want to do first this morning is to talk about the structure of Beatitudes and then to look at the differences between Matthew's version and Luke's version. Now, classically, Beatitudes are divided into three parts. They are tripartite. They always begin and move in the same way. Classically, now there are two-part Beatitudes, particularly Beatitudes that are in the Psalms and in the Old Testament and in some of the letters, like James. But the classic Beatitudes begin with an initial Felicitude, that always comes first. And the Greek word for this Felicitude here is makarios. And it probably is best translated divine happiness. Now, the translation in the Revised Standard translates that blessed. But probably a more accurate description would be divinely happy as the first statement. Then that follows the designated current state. In the Beatitude. So in this case, it might be the poor, or the meek, or the pure-hearted. That is the current state of things. That's the second part of it. So there comes a statement of felicitude, divinely happy are the meek, and then the third part is why. Then follows the eschatologic reason for ultimate divine happiness. That would be a characteristic form of Beatitudes. And what happens is that in the eschatologic third part, the original state of the second part is reversed. It's turned upside down. The state you're in may not be divinely happy, but the ultimate state is that you will be divinely happy. So that is the way that the Beatitudes are struggle. And there is a connectional word in the Greek called hoti, H-O-T-I, means for. It's a linking phrase there. For example, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the hoti conjunctive holds this together. Now, as I say, Matthew lists nine Beatitudes in Luke 4. Matthews 8 and 9 are very peculiar because... As one of the scholars says, it was really gauche to put the same thing twice there in 8 and 9. You know, he says, first, blessed are those who are persecuted. And then right after that, in 9, he says, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you. And then after the first one, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, if you're persecuted. And the second one, he says, great is your reward in heaven. Now, I think that means that Matthew or the redactor, whoever put Matthew together took this beatitude from two separate sources. And instead of simply merging them or eliminating the one, he put them there. But it really is a duplication. There's really no significant difference between eight and nine. Which leads me to talk about the sources for just a minute. The sources in the New Testament by most scholars are considered to be five, three major and two minor. Now, the one that they use the most is labeled Q, and that simply comes from the German word for source. So Q just means a source for the background of the gospel writers. It's spelled Q-U-E-L-L-E. This was a compilation of Jesus' sayings which were probably put together in Antioch around 50 A.D., and they're thought to be one of the earliest sources that are available as background for the Gospel writers. Then Mark is the second major source, thought to be the first of the Gospels. And then John, in the fourth Gospel, is entirely different. And then the two minor sources are called M and L, and those are distinct verses coming from Matthew and Luke. And we'll see the use of M here in just a moment. So both Luke and Matthew incorporate the Q source, but Matthew adds on it. The Q document is not extant. We don't have a Q document. It's been reconstructed from remembrances and other quotations that are around, but most people believe it's probably fairly accurate. And as I say, both Luke and Matthew incorporate that. It's thought that in Q there are four Beatitudes, which is what Luke largely uses. And one would think that this is the way that they were stated originally. There's no excess words here. One of the things that's very characteristic about the New Testament and the the Gospels, they just get to the point. It's not wordy, unlike many theologians. Number one in Q is happy are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Two, happy are the mourners, for they shall be comforted. Three, happy are the hungry, for they shall be satisfied. Four. Happy are you when people revile you and persecute you and say every kind of evil against you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And Luke uses that almost intact. Now when we compare Matthew and Luke and the use of the Q sources here, we'll see two striking differences. Matthew very characteristically spiritualizes the message. And as many of the authorities, like Father Brown and Father Meyer, say, they do not think this is necessarily illegitimate, that there may be, again, in one of these two settings, it may well be that the teacher modified this in in front of a congregation to spiritualize it as well as to make it literal. But in Q and in Luke, the beatitude is blessed are the poor. And Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He spiritualizes that. Luke and Q say, blessed are the hungry, naked. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Again, many scholars think that the right word there is not righteousness, but justice. Just a minor point, it's pretty interesting that the word justice does not appear in either Mark or John, but this is a very striking difference on these two Beatitudes from Q, which are taken literally by Luke as poor and hungry, and spiritualized by Matthew. Now Matthew also, in terms of looking at other sources, uses the third person in the third part of the Beatitude. He always will say, for they, you know, blessed is this, for they. He uses a third person. Luke always uses a second person, blessed are you. So that's a difference in the source as well. It gives you insight into that. Now in the Q sermon, which Luke uses, the focus is on persons in need. Their behavior is not outlined at all. It is not said that they are good or virtuous or practicing things that the gospel teaches. It simply says that they are in need. So what we see there are the poor, the mourners, the hungry, and the persecuted. That's all. But Matthew adds five beatitudes which focus on good people doing good things. The meek. The merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemakers, and those persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, some scholars eliminate all five of the Matthew additions as being inauthentic because they're slavishly related to the Q source. I think that's very illegitimate, and I absolutely agree with the view that the five expanded Beatitudes came from the teacher as well. So in summary, in looking at these two passages, here's what we have, just to reiterate it. Nine Beatitudes in Matthew, four in Luke. Spiritualization of two by Matthew. Third person, Matthew. Second person, Luke. Persons in need, without consideration of their activities in Luke. Good people seeking to express Christian virtues and to follow Christ in Matthew, in the five additional Beatitudes which are there. The Matthean additions really describe the group of persons that God delights in. They are the description of people whose behavior and attitudes God delights in. He would love them. Archibald Hunter has a great summary statement of the Mountain Sermon Version. Here's what he says. Here, turning the world's verdicts upside down, Jesus pronounces divinely happy those who know their need for God and long for the triumph of his cause, the mourners and the lowly ones, the compassionate and the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who suffer for the sake of right. To such, God promises the blessings of the heavenly kingdom. So, that's the structural background of these famous verses. Now, having said that, I want to say two other things that are derivative from them. The first is this, that Jesus is an eschatological prophet and not a temporal prophet. If there's one thing that can summarize the activities of the great prophets of the Old Testament, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, if you can say one thing about them, it is that they were passionately concerned about particular social and political evils of their day. They were for justice, and they warned kings and the people of God about his wrath over injustice so the old testament prophets were interested in social and political reform they spoke only or largely to the issue of dealing with social evil and injustice jesus is not primarily interested in reform He is reforming implicitly in his powerful demands to care for the poor and to express mercy to neighbor. Implicitly, he is powerfully reforming, entirely in accord with the Old Testament prophets. In fact, because he quoted them all the time, he would give his imprimatur of approval for dealing with political and social illness and evil. But in the Beatitudes, He is not speaking to those things. Listen to John Meyer. We begin to see why Jesus was not interested in and did not issue pronouncements about concrete social and political reforms, either for the world in general or for Israel in particular. He was not proclaiming reform for the world. He was proclaiming the end of the world the fate of the world. He was speaking to last times. And that is very different. It's very interesting that John Meyer in his study of the life of Jesus, even though in the Matthew Gospel it's very early, it's in chapter 5, he puts it at the end in his book of the teachings of Jesus. And he says that the reason he does that is that the Beatitudes, although they were given first, confirm essentially all of the teachings of the gospel. He considers this a sort of a proof text of all the other teachings about salvation and the end of life and so forth by its eschatologic emphasis. So what the teacher of teachers is saying here, this wisdom teacher, he's different from the other wisdom teachers because he's talking about end times. And his message is that it is God alone who acts in the end time to establish a kingdom of justice and love what human leaders from the kings of israel to the leaders of this world in 2001 have not done and apparently will never do or can never do god will do on the last day if you look at the leaders of the world on all aspects of the world. They either do not wish peace or find themselves incapable of achieving it. Remember that very sad verse where Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Here's another example in the Beatitudes that he doesn't really have confidence in the human race to accomplish the things that God had planted in their hearts. So what kings and leaders of all times have failed to do, he says in the Beatitudes that God will do in the last day. Jesus taught that God alone can reverse the piteous state of humans. They may not deserve his mercy, but they will receive it. So the message of Jesus in the core Beatitudes is not about generalized wisdom the hallmark of other wisdom teachers, but eschatological hope. He is speaking to eschatologic hope. In Paul's view, the middle of the tripartite gifts of the gospel, faith and hope and love, and Jesus is speaking to this about hope eschatologically. On Monday, we buried Pete Lawless, and Liz had asked me to speak to the issue of hope. Because in an individual death or in terrorism, what people are looking for is eschatologic hope. It's very interesting that in the religion section of the New York Times yesterday, the atheists feel left out in the terrorism because they say, We don't have any belief in life after death, and everybody's talking about all these things in God, and since we don't believe in that, we're sort of left out. Well, you know, that is a problem. I mean, uh, it is a problem. But I mentioned in my very brief remarks on Monday a statement that I have always liked. It's this. When one listens to the eternity stories, when one listens to the eschatological stories of the Gospels, it's like listening to a chuckle in the darkness. That in the midst of the darkness, when you hear these stories and these things that are in the Beatitudes, it's like hearing a distant chuckle, a laugh in the darkness. I once asked Gil Thomas, one of the elders here, about one of our members I hadn't seen in a long time. I said, "Was so-and-so alive, and Gil Thomas's answer, he's not loquacious. He says he is and he ain't, you know. <laughs> That's a Christian view. He is and he ain't. So I pose the question, is Pete Lawless alive today? He is and he ain't. And that's the chuckle in the darkness, you see. But everybody is talking about this sort of thing. I was at a dinner last night, and the wife of one of our faculty members said, what are you teaching on tomorrow? I said, the Beatitudes. And she said, blessed are the peacemakers. Isn't that wonderful? Will it ever happen? She said, I've run into all sorts of people who in the midst of this shaking event for the country have sort of lost their faith and lost their hope without eschatologic hope. I think that everybody wants to hear this eschatologic hope. And that really is the only final hope. The teacher said that himself in Matthew 24, let me just remind you of what he said, because what we have to do, what saints do, is they endure despite the uncertainty of life. What's happened is that the fragility of life has become very visible to all of us. One is constantly living, if I may say it this way, in the awareness of the valley of the shadow of death. And that was predicted. Listen to the teacher in 24, Matthew 3. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will this be, and when will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all this is but the beginning of birth pangs. And then they will hand you over to be tortured and will put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. That's what the wife was telling me last night, you know, the lawless evil has made their hearts yearning for hope grow cold. But Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations. So the eschatologic hope allows one in the face of the individual death after a full life and a wonderful life in the case of Pete Lawless to the possibility of mass terror one endures by saying the worst thing that can happen to me is to be without God, not to die that's not the worst thing so jesus speaks eschatologically in the beatitudes pointing to the end times and he's not a temporal prophet although as i'll say in this next point that realized eschatology is part of what we do now third thing is this that jesus is the light of the world and so must we be on his behalf in john eight twelve, he says i am the light of the world He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then he tells the people on the mountain, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it underneath a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. We can't do anything about the macrocosm individually. There's not a thing in the world that we can do about terrorist cells or whatever. Not a thing individually. Governments might. But in our microcosm, we can be the light. I mentioned I was at a dinner last night. We're trying to recruit a new chief of cardiology because our class member, Dr. Sandy Williams, accepted the deanship at Duke Medical School, and so I'm trying to replace him. I thought this was very interesting. As we sat down at table, in the home of another department chairman who is a very famous scientist he's a member of the national academy of sciences and in the institute of medicine the national academy his wife is a pediatrician and the candidate and his wife were sitting there and she said in our house even though it's very hectic getting our kids to supper we always have a blessing so i said well do you want me to say the blessing and so for the first time in my career in an academic setting and in a recruitment, we had a thanks to God for all the blessings that had come. It was one of the most remarkable things. I'd noticed crosses around the house. This the first time I'd been in their house. Without any explicit thought at all, she said, let's pray. So that everybody there knew that this woman and her family had their hope in the light of the world, you see. That's what we're called to do, to be little light bulbs in the world. We can do that. Our former class member, David Finley, and I had several exchanges. He's out in California now, and I think our church and the class was important in his own pilgrimage, but he has an excellent job out there. David has always been one who, in the midst of his work, including his current boss, who was the former president of GTE. He happens to be a patient of mine. I took care of him when he was president of GTE, and then he took over this other big company. And what does Finley do? Finley gives him a set of the Brown Lectures to his boss, you know. I said, that's pretty gutsy, you know, I'm in to do that. There was an electrical engineer in the firm who was going through a divorce, and the guy said he wanted to read a book that would tell him about the life of Jesus. So David Finley says, Help, what do I give him? So I sent him a book that's a little out of print and he's gonna try to find it. But then he sent me another message that I think he is profoundly in pre faith and he desperately needs to hear this. And I sent him back a message and I said, David, that is what evangelists do. They introduce Christ and seek to be a catalyst in the transformation from pre faith to faith. David Finley wanted to be a light in his life there. And that is what we all are called to do. So at the heart of Jesus' message is the promise of the definitive coming of God at the end of the cosmos, or maybe our solar system, I don't know. And it is God who will bring an end to the present state of things by revealing his power and glory in that day. And that is either a terrible threat are the greatest of comforts, if that is true. And in promising us, as he did in the Beatitudes, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, what he does is, in that kingdom, he vindicates those who unjustly suffer in the world. In that kingdom, he promises that the sorrowing will be comforted. Remember that those who mourn may be for personal events, an environmental or a loss of a person, but it is also for Christians, the deep mourning for the whole world and the sadness of it, whether that's little babies starving to death in Afghanistan or wherever. It's a deep mourning that evil is so powerful in the world and that our counter witness is so casual. In that kingdom, the hungry will be fed in full at the eschatological banquet. Q says, feed the hungry, the hungry are going to be fed. Matthew would say, in that final eschatologic banquet, we'll sit with God. It's symbolic language, it's symbolic, because we can't understand that. You know, in the Revelation, Jesus is quoted as saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and He with me, you see. It's this eschatologic banquet that's symbolic of the feeding of the hungry. In that kingdom, the debt of sin will be remitted by God, just as if we follow the mountain sermon, we forgive others. That is the whole message of the Beatitudes, that the kingdom of God will change the current state into a new eschatologic state, which is our final hope and allows us to endure temporally and eternally. You know, the last words of the Bible are of this eschatological hope. Here's the way John of Patmos writes it, the speaking Christ. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Now that's against the background of a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years i don't know whether this is going to be five million years from now or whether we'd have a nuclear explosion now whatever i don't know but the promise is valid whether it occurs tomorrow or whether it comes eons later because it's god who's in control and so jesus says surely i am coming soon and john says amen come lord jesus And then because of that eschatologic promise, John's last words are these, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. Is the last word. So be it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great passage from the mountain sermon. We pray that we would be able to live the Beatitudes while we hope for their fulfillment. We ask you to render our hearts open to your presence, such that we are kind and compassionate, devoted to peace, that we mourn for those who are in pain, and that we regret that while we are never persecuted for your name, that we're not faithful in being the light of the world that you would have us to be. And yet, Father, we claim that if we're not everything that you want us to be, and eventually will make us to be, that you're pleased with the progress that we have made, and that in tiny ways, like saying a blessing in front of a crowd of people in prefaith, or being concerned about a man in divorce and looking for hope and faith, that these little lights will be yours and magnified, and we ask you to help us grow so that we are more like the eschatologic picture help us to make the eschatologic hope be real and realized in this life we ask all these things in the name of the teacher of teachers even jesus the christ the savior of the world amen okay